On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Thomas Kidd about Thomas Jefferson. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Jefferson, what's his place in American religious life, how influential was he, did his becoming a Unitarian really solve any of his religious doubt, what was his relationship to his Anglican Christianity, how did that influence and shape who he was, how did he envision the relationship between church and state, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and it's just me today without Brandon Askew for now anyway. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. So if you're not familiar with us, one of the things that we try to do when we try to cash out what exactly it looks like to seriously think, we've created these... Well, we haven't created them. We've just kind of called out four particular intellectual virtues that we want to prioritize, to cherish, and try to encourage each other to to promote. And that is charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So when we started the podcast, the original idea was we we're both Baptists, me and Brandon, and what we've both experienced growing up is somewhat of a lack of an intellectual, uh, a robust intellectual culture. And so we wanted to encourage to create those sort of things. But as we did that, we realized, you know what? A lot of the people that are more interested in the intellectual side of things can also be jerks. So we tried to say we want to be critical thinkers, but we also want to have charity and curiosity and have the right sort of dispositions when we think about these things. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast, with everything we do. So if you're new, first time listening, that's really the ethos that we want to promote. Now, for our guest today, I'm really interested excited to introduce you all to Dr. Thomas Kidd. So I think a lot of you probably know who he is. He's written a lot of material. I know I had several of his books assigned when I was in seminary, uh, and I really enjoyed them. So there's there are people who know how to write history in a way that is lucid and enjoyable. And I count him and, and I think George Marsden and, and Mark Knoll, I guess, as three of my favorite people to read when it comes to intellectual history, particularly of North America. So he's got a brand new book out on Thomas Jefferson that I'm really excited to talk with him to today about. Uh, if, if you don't know about it, I'm going to link to it in the show notes so you can go get a copy of it and read it for yourself. So I'm, this is going to be a lot of fun. So Dr. Kidd, before we get started talking all things Thomas Jefferson, Give me an update. Where are you at now? What's your primary responsibility, research focus? And then what made you want to write a biography of Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, as you said, I've just, I just moved to uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Um, I had taught at Baylor for 20 years and uh, just uh, decided to, to make the big move Um I had taught as a visiting professor for three years at Midwestern, um, and and then that turned into a full time uh, switch. So um, it, it's it's a big change for us, but but we're really excited about being able to work in a seminary context. At Baylor, I was in a history department, um, and uh, so we're we're really excited about being able to work directly with pastors and pastors and training and be uh, of more direct service to the church in that way. 
Um, and Midwestern is just such a dynamic environment. It's growing like crazy and, uh, you know, just a lot of young dynamic faculty here. And uh, so it's, it's just a great place to be. Um, yeah. And uh, I got into history somewhat as a, a, you know, my intellectual development as a Christian. Um, I became a Christian my freshman year in college at Clemson University in South Carolina and that obviously set me on a completely different spiritual path, but also um, developing intellectually and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to think as a Christian? Um, and I, I just found myself really gravitating towards uh, American history and religious history in particular, um, and uh, ended up writing a, a master's thesis on the Puritans and uh, and then uh, you mentioned George Marsden. I, he was my doctoral advisor at, at Notre Dame. Um, and so I went to Notre Dame for my PhD and worked with Marsden because I, I thought, you know, this this is a, a great model of writing, uh, you know, highly professional, but, uh, you know, clearly Christian history. And uh, I got to be there with him um, when he was working on the Jonathan Edwards biography uh, which is maybe the book that he's best known for now. And so that that was hugely formative for me intellectually and, and um, you know, just in terms of what it means to be a, a Christian professor. So um, as you said, I've, I've written a number of books, some, some biographies, some books on topics like The Great Awakening and so forth. And, and, uh, but I do enjoy writing biography including of people like Thomas Jefferson, who I, I certainly don't regard as a Christian, uh, but he was absolutely fascinated with spiritual, ethical issues in the Bible itself. Um, but there's a lot of confusion, I think, among Christians about Jefferson and all the founding fathers. There, There is always a tendency among American Christians to wish and hope that the founding fathers were Christians, um, and, and some of the founding fathers were. I did a biography of Patrick Henry, uh, who, who definitely was a Christian. Um, uh, and that's part of the reason I did the, my biography of him is what, what did the American Revolution look like from somebody coming from Henry's spiritual perspective? But, uh, you, you know, there, there's a tendency in American sort of civil religion to, to wish that all the founding fathers were Christians. And if they weren't, to try to form them into that, <laughs> that image. And, and, and so, uh, but, but it also doesn't do any good to go to the other extreme and just say that Jefferson was totally secular, maybe an atheist, uh, which he definitely was not an atheist. Uh, and, and so I, I thought here's an opportunity to, to engage with somebody who's obviously really well known, but still seems kind of enigmatic about his uh, spiritual, ethical, uh, views and then and then how that matched up with the way that he actually lived, uh, including most obviously being a slaveholder. Um, that I, I thought there was a real opportunity there to to discuss something that that both Christians and secular people I think have a hard time knowing what to do with Jefferson. Good stuff. So we have I guess a decent segment of listeners who live in the UK or who live in Australia and different places, New Zealand. And or Canada even, and 
I don't know if all of them have a good picture of Thomas Jefferson. So maybe you give me like the 30,000 foot view. Just give me a couple minute overview. Who is Thomas Jefferson? Set him in context. And then we can talk about sort of more of some of his interesting views and development. Sure. So Jefferson uh, grows up in colonial Virginia. He's, you know, in a kind of conventional slave owning family, uh, farming tobacco family. Uh, but he's very, very bright. It's it's clear from early on that he's he's sort of extraordinarily bright. And uh, so he goes to the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, um, gets involved in the early revolutionary patriot movement in the 1760s and 70s. Um, and then basically through uh, kind of extraordinarily good timing, he ends up being tasked by the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia with writing the Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, July 4th, 1776. And so um, that that really brings Jefferson to that national fame and, and notoriety. Um, he ends up uh, uh, serving in various political offices in Virginia, but then gets chosen as, as a diplomat to France in the, in the 1780s uh, by the new American government. And uh, so then he goes on to be Secretary of State in George Washington's administration, um, is a candidate for president in 1796, and then and then ultimately is elected president in uh, 1800, defeating the sitting president, John Adams. Serves two terms, uh, two four-year terms as, as president, and then goes into retirement um, and, and lives for uh, another 17 years or so. Um, after after his retirement from politics, and probably the greatest accomplishment of his retirement is that he founds the University of Virginia, um, which is uh, one of the first, not the first, but one of the first sort of recognizably public universities in America that was not going to have, it wasn't secular, but it wasn't going to have any kind of denominational commitment. So in, in diplomacy, politics, governing, uh, education. There's a whole series of enormous accomplishments, but I think really his greatest contribution is as a political writer, most obviously in the Declaration of Independence. So you state in your book, the dissonance between stated belief and practice reality is perhaps more acute for Jefferson than any other American ever. And that really caught my eye. And I was just super curious about why you think that was for him. Was there something just personality-wise? Was it his context? I mean, what, what's driving the difference between these two things for him? So the Declaration of Independence is the most influential political document written in American history. And um, he, he He's, he makes the case for human equality in that document in a, in a way that resonates not only through American history, but also world history. And he bases the argument for human equality on our common creation by God. Um, and, and even though Jefferson, by 1776, is al- already becoming or has become a skeptic about traditional Christianity and the Bible, he still... I think, believes in a created order. Uh, He very much believes in a created order. And he beautifully makes the case for human equality on that basis. And and it's 
this this claim that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights is uh, a claim that was very beautifully put. I mean, it's it, you know, I just saw somebody on Twitter. We just got past the Fourth of July, and somebody said that's the greatest sentence ever written. <laughs> Which I, there might be some contenders in the Bible that I would probably have to put ahead of that. But but still, it's it, it it's just a lovely way of putting it. It would have uh, created broad assent among Americans involved with the revolutionary movement. But putting the the argument for human equality on the basis of our common creation by God raises questions immediately, and it's not just us looking back on it, about most obviously slavery, um, but you could also bring up the issue of you know, women's equality, because women in 1776 had virtually no legal rights at all, um, uh, you know, and other civil rights movements and so forth have, have always turned to the Declaration's language to because it's 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 the most universal standard that there can be is our, uh, our human relationship to the creator God. I mean, that that's the most universal case for human equality that you can make. And then you look at the way that Jefferson actually lived. He, he owned hundreds of people as slaves. And um, he, we are almost certain now that he carried on a long-term sexual relationship with one of those enslaved women, Sally Hemings, and he had almost certainly a number of children by her who were also his slaves. Um, and, and so it's just very jarring to think, you know, how could someone who's, who so beautifully articulated human equality uh, in a theological way uh, then live like this? And, and, and part, of, part of the reason it's such an acute problem is because the Declaration has become what Martin Luther King Jr. said, it, it was, it's America's creed. I mean, it, it's, it's what Americans tend to look to first is historically explaining the meaning of America. But Jefferson also promoted the Declaration as that kind of definitive statement of American identity. And yet the way that he actually lived seems profoundly contradictory uh, to the, the values stated in it. So that's the problem. So it's interesting the way you kind of work through his issues and his sins, whereas there seems to be a pretty wide-ranging almost reception of Jefferson and how he acted. I mean, it, all the time today, the issue of slavery is how how do we understand someone who would affirm that and be willing to that? Because I think all of us now are like, that's clearly absolutely wrong to own another person in that way. And yet all of these people did. And so there's this like internal like wrestling with how do we reconcile that? And you've put in, I guess, in your writing, you're trying to understand Jefferson in his time, not ours. So my question is, is there a place for the historian to judge someone of the past by our present standards? I mean, is there a place for that sort of historiography? Well, it it is complicated, and especially for Christians, if, if we can't judge people for by I wouldn't say modern standards, but you know universal biblical standards, um, then you are walking into a position of moral relativism, 
And we don't want to do that as Christians. Um, but I, I think one good place to start is to think, uh, would, would Jefferson have been capable in his cultural context of knowing that slavery was wrong? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Uh, and and it's, it's not just that he had a number of people around him pushing him to take uh, more definitive action against slavery himself, which he did, but Jefferson said that slavery was immoral. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, he doesn't get let off the hook by, you know, this kind of well cultural blind spots and, and all that. Now, the way that he lived with regard to owning people as slaves was very common in his cultural context, and it was it was readily excused in that sense. But he knew that slavery was wrong, and it was wrong, he thought, in Christian categories, but also the categories associated with the more secular enlightenment. Um, it, it still was wrong. And so uh, that that's part of what's so problematic is that um, he just was not acting on his his stated beliefs. Um, and, and where I draw the line, though, and, and try to moderate some of the sort of cancel culture tendencies that we have today is I do not think that we should look back on people like Jefferson and just sort of casually assume we would have done better if we were living their lives. Um, I, I think that that's what the the implicit lesson of a lot of the canceling of historical figures that we do today is I'm better than them. I surely would have done better than them if I lived their lives. But I don't, you know, uh, I tell my students regularly, hey, you know, if you had been born into a slaveholding family in Virginia in 1743 like Jefferson, uh, you almost certainly would have died as a slave-owning person, and, and you would not have freed your slaves. You no, would not have been the one. We, we always think, oh, I would have seen it, and I would have... But how, why do we think that? It's because we have, I think, all of us have too elevated a sense of our courage and moral standards, um, and and so I, I that's where I draw the line is is you know we absolutely especially because Jefferson like I said knew that it was wrong what he what he was doing we can be critical of him morally absolutely but it, it should really lead more ideally to humility uh, rather than arrogance about uh, you know how great we are because we denounce the right people historically yeah. That's that's helpful. Very very helpful context there. So another thing I'm really interested in is Jefferson's religious life. So you talk about how him becoming a Unitarian, trying to solve some of his religious doubts. I mean, did that really solve his doubts? I mean, obviously, I think we both say he's not a Christian. So <laughs> in some sense, I I don't think he could solve his doubts. But was there any sense where that seemed to... I don't know, quell some of his existential angst? Well, I think it did in the sense that it, it's odd about Jefferson that it's it's not until late in life that he comes to a point where he affirms what he considered to be a version of Christianity, which is Unitarianism. 
um, it, it took him a really long time to get there. Um, and it's strange that it happens during his first term as president. I mean, he's busy with other things, right? Um, but there, there's, there's something uh, or things that are that are really bothering Jefferson. I think in the early 1800s. I mean, he's he's been really scarred by the political controversies of the 1790s, which were vicious. Uh, they were as vicious as any kind of political controversies we have today. It's just they didn't have Twitter. Um, and, and so um, he's bothered about that. He's bothered about, um, in 1802, the newspapers um, break the allegation that he's had this relationship with Sally Hemings. That is not something that is, you know, revisionist history or something. I mean, it's, it, it was widely known and discussed at, in the early 1800s. And I think he's he's horrified by this. I mean, he, he I believe he had this relationship, but he had planned for it always to be an entirely private matter. And, you know, she lived in his house. He, he, he had ready access to her. Um, and but but he it was a nightmare for him to have that go public, especially because he was, he was, I think he must've been horrified by his daughters knowing about this. He had two loving daughters at that time. And, um, he's, he's, he's just horrified his white daughters. I I should say he had, uh, mixed race children who were his slaves. Um, so, uh, something is stirring in him about, I, I have to show people that I'm a Christian. Because in 1800, he had been widely accused of being an atheist. And so all this is piling up. And I, I do think it resolves in, in the sense of, of allowing him somehow now to be able to say, I am a Christian and I believe in Christian ethics. And, and so that, that's how it functions for him. It, it, it's, it's personal, but it's also about the way he can present himself publicly, which like most major politicians, he's obsessed with how he comes off publicly. Um, and so that's a big deal for him is that he, he and he is constrained, I think, by his wanting to be consistent about he knows that he doesn't believe in basic Christian doctrines, uh, including the Trinity and the resurrection and, and, and the divinity of Christ. So he doesn't want to just say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian or whatever. I mean, he he. He has to figure out a way intellectually to be able to say this, and it and it actually means something consistently. And so he lands on it with Unitarianism, where he says, "Okay, that requires me to affirm that there's one God, and that the Creator God, and there there's no Trinity." He says, "But uh, and and Jesus is the great the greatest moral teacher the world has ever known." And and he can he can absolutely affirm those things, and 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 remain what he thinks as as consistent intellectually with his skepticism about Christianity's supernatural claims. So one thing along the lines of religious aspects that you mention is sort of the rhythms and the rhetoric of Anglican Christianity seem to remain with him yeah. throughout his life, even as he becomes skeptical of all these things. Do you think those rhythms and the rhetoric had any positive benefit ultimately to his life? I think 
in at least the Baptist context I grew up in, rote ritualism is all bad. But I think as I've grown and matured and developed in my own faith, I think, you know what, rhythms and rhetoric can have positive benefits. So I'm curious for Jefferson in particular, were these good things or were these neutral things or just completely irrelevant? Well, I think a lot of it just helps to explain his mental landscape and his rhetorical landscape, too. I mean, he's one of the greatest writers of world political history. And it's helpful to know that a lot of his writing and thinking was shaped by biblical categories, especially the idea of a created order is absolutely foundational to everything else Jefferson does. Um, and, And so I think that in his moments, uh, you, you could cite many, but the most obvious one is the Declaration. Um, that is a powerful theological, not Christian, I mean, it's not specifically Christian, so we don't want to overstate this, but without the theology of a creator and created order, there is no Declaration. So, uh, and, and that was, uh, I think, on balance, used for good things at the time, as limited as, as it was, and then even greater things as appropriated by Abraham Lincoln. Um, and, you know, he said that America was dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal in, in the Gettysburg Address. And then when Martin Luther King says that it's America's creed, um, you can see then that this this theological inheritance uh, that he derived from his, you know, Anglican upbringing, which did leave a very deep imprint, um, I, I think was, yeah, it was used for good at, at, at times in Jefferson's life, for sure. I don't think it was salvific, um, but uh, it, in a kind of common grace type of way, it, w- it was used for good things. And it, 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 you know, he's living in this pre-Darwinian world where it, even someone as skeptical as Jefferson can't even imagine the idea that there's not a created order. And I think for Christians, you you would say, well, that's that's a good thing that that he believed that, and it's it's why the Declaration is so powerful. So I want to shift a little bit, slightly, not totally. We're still talking religious sort of aspects. What what's Jefferson's uh, vision of the relationship between the church and the state? So I think a lot of our listeners are super interested in this sort of topic right now, especially. I don't know if it's just the cultural pressures that are causing us to to think about these things or what, but maybe Jefferson's vision of it, and then does it contrast? How does it compare to others, contemporaries? Um, yeah, I, I think just we'll start there. Sure. So Jefferson uh, is is a great champion of religious liberty. He and, and James Madison, among the founders, are the two great champions of religious liberty. And the the context in which that develops is a context where Virginia and most of the other colonies have official denominations, tax-supported, state-backed denominations. That's when the First Amendment says an establishment of religion. That's that's what it's talking about is a is a tax-supported Christian denomination in Virginia and most of the. Uh, Colonies outside of New England, it's the Church of England. No surprise, uh, because these are these are British colonies, and so the Church of England is established by law. Um, Church of England is still established by law in England, 
um, and and so uh, still established today. So uh, so that's the context in, into which Jefferson is making the argument for religious liberty. Should we or should we not have official tax-supported churches? And in Virginia, in the 1760s and 70s, there is a, a great wave of persecution against non-Anglicans, especially against Baptists. And by the early 1770s, there are dozens of Baptist preachers who've been put in jail uh, for illegal preaching in Virginia because they won't work the program as far as what the established church requires. That they, they, You can get licenses to preach from the establishment, but there's a lot of bureaucratic you know, hurdles that, that you have to go over to, to get there. And the Baptists just find this obnoxious, right? I mean, they, they, I, I want to preach the gospel and I'm, I do not need to get the government's permission to do this, right? And so they would just set up shop, you know, and wherever they wanted and, and preach. And, and, and so here comes uh, not only the local Anglican priest, but also the sheriff, saying, you are not allowed by law to preach here. And so Baptist preachers are getting beat up and thrown in jail and fined and, and, and all this. So, um, so Jefferson and Madison are watching this going on, and they think it's appalling to, to have the government. Uh, they, it's not because they were Baptists or evangelicals, but they, but they just thought the government shouldn't be doing this. Um, and they and Jefferson in particular knew that if the government is persecuting the Baptists, they'll come for him next because he doesn't, you know, I mean, he thinks that the Baptists are probably crazy because they don't practice infant baptism. But I mean, Jefferson doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. Right. So so if the government persecutes the Baptists, good grief, uh, they're they're coming after the heretic Jefferson next. So um so they begin to craft the, the argument based on this practical experience of watching the persecution in Virginia, but also deriving from lessons from John Locke, who, uh, you know, 80 years earlier had made argument for toleration of uh, religious dissent. Now, you know, he, he had limits to it, too. You can't tolerate atheism. You can't tolerate Catholics because they're antichrist and, you know, <laughs> categories of the time. I mean, they're, they're subversive to the state. And so you can't you can't have Catholics around. But if it's a Protestant, you just leave them alone. Um, and, and as long as they don't commit crimes in the name of religion, then we can just tolerate their existence. So uh, all this uh, crystallizes in uh, Jefferson's effort to disestablish the Church of England in Virginia. And Jefferson writes the bill for establishing religious freedom in the late 1770s, uh, and then Madison ends up getting it passed in Virginia in 1786. And it, it is a remarkably modern uh, view of church and state that they, they say, you know, we're going to get out of the business of promoting any kind of Christian denomination or requiring people to pay religious taxes or requiring anybody to go to church anywhere. Um, the, the government is just not involved with that. And we are going to let Christian groups just practice their faith and freedom. And we're, we're effectively going to have a kind of free market of, of religion. And the government is just basically not going to 
take notice of, of religion or religious groups. And uh, the Baptists were thrilled about that because that to them that meant the end of persecution and it meant that they could just preach the gospel and freedom and that's all they wanted they did they didn't need the government to help them they didn't need, they didn't want any assistance from the government they didn't want any tax funding they didn't want the government imposing religious tests on people they just just give us the freedom to preach the gospel and be the church and that's all we want and they got it in 1786 in virginia and jefferson was he was really proud of that i mean that's one of the three things that he put on his epitaph or his tombstone was uh, author of the bill for establishing religious freedom. Um, and, and so that he saw that as one of the main accomplishments of his career. So now I'm curious, would you say, I mean, you've, you've written a book with Barry Hankins, I think on Baptists in America, that those Baptists have a theological reason for wanting to do this. Um, other than just, I want to be able to preach. Was there something beyond that that was driving this idea of having religious freedom? Well, I think that there is a view of the church um, that that there's a rejection of a, a fundamental kind of state church mentality, um, you know, with a sort of Constantinian settlement. Um, that there is a, a at least an inference from from scripture that the best uh, you know I think about the you know the prayers for rulers I think in first Timothy when he's saying you know the the best thing we should pray for rulers that we that the church would be able to operate in sort of peace and and, and quietness um, that that you don't need the government to be uh, helping the church uh, in in other words raising money for it and enforcing theological standards but you do want to be left alone um, by the by the government and so um that that is i, I think a theological view of, of what the ideal situation is for the church even in a pagan culture um, is just to be left alone um and, and be able to operate in freedom as as the church so so that that i do think is a theological vision of the church but of course their argument for religious liberty is very much a reaction to having been persecuted by the state churches and so they don't like that um and and i i can understand and, and so they they develop this ideal vision of of religious liberty as if we could just be left alone by the government, if they would just get out of our business, then we can preach the gospel and evangelize and plant churches and we'll win the day because we'll outwork the Anglicans, we'll outwork the Congregationalists. And during the era of the Second Great Awakening, from you know, roughly from the Revolution to the Civil War, that's exactly what happened. I mean, the Baptists and Methodists came to the fore as the leading denominations in, in America, um, and it has a lot to do with the achievement of uh, religious liberty. So I'm thinking Jefferson, you know, his trajectory on thinking about these sort of things, would he, I mean, I know you, you can't give me a prophecy of what would have happened if Jefferson lived today, but if he's living today, is he going to be very much, let's keep the two separate, or would he still be, would he, would he progress on that um, a viewpoint, or would he be closer to what he was 
during his own time, do you think? Just if you had to take a guess. Well, some of the principles, I think, would remain the same. I mean, he he definitely would not want the government, um, you know, promoting the interests of, of one denomination or another. But that doesn't seem to be the the environment we we live in today. I think now um, it's we have changed dramatically about what the meaning of an establishment is. So uh, we, we have this you know, recent Supreme Court case about the, the football coach praying uh, and being demoted by, by the government you, you know, for, for praying uh, in his capacity as a, as a football coach. Uh, I think Jefferson would have found that to be a very strange application of no establishment of, of religion, um, because I, I think on that one, if I had to guess, um, that that Jefferson would have emphasized the the freedom of of people, even public employees, to exercise their religion, um, and and so you know Jefferson is not a strict separationist. I mean, he he has a level of involvement with religion as both the governor of Virginia and the president of the United States that I think I would find somewhat uncomfortable. I mean, they're having church services, or at least, you know, preachers coming in and giving sermons on government property um, with Jefferson and Congress in attendance. Um, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's, I mean, there are, and there are continuing instances, um, including during Jefferson's administration of the government, the, the federal, federal for sure, but, but also state governments giving direct funding to Christian groups. Um, you know, the, Jefferson is sometimes claimed by strict separationists as being their sort of founding father, but he's not. So Jefferson is not bothered by sort of the public presence of religion. Um, it's just that he, he wants to get the government out of the business of playing favorites as far as denominations go. So, I mean, it, it is hard to know what people who lived 200, 250 years ago um, would think about the issues today. I mean, um, that, that, that can be hard to predict because they're not dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with today. But the evidence would suggest that in Jefferson's context, what really bothered him was having the government effectively sponsor a Christian denomination. And, and I think that, you know, for Baptists, that's, we shouldn't want that either. Yeah. So another thing you, you talk about in your book is this code of honor that's totally impressed upon him, and probably, I assume, most people during that time period. So maybe talk to me a little bit about what that is, why it's so important, and then when did this sort of disappear? Because when I look around at the context, it's like, you know, political context especially, it's, we don't want a code of honor, just tell me how it is, you know, just with all the vulgarity that you want, just shoot me straight. I don't want people trying to tiptoe and dance around the issues. So I guess begin, what is it? Why is it important there? And what happened to it now? Right. Well, Jefferson grows up in uh, a Southern culture, but it's also common in just kind of general English culture about the way that gentlemen and aristocrats should live. Um, and there is uh, obviously 
a, a, a sort of style of living that comes along with that. But it's also uh, just an obsession with one's honor. So, so this is partly why Jefferson found it so painful to have the the revelation about Sally Hemings given the newspaper, because um, he he is is charged with immoral behavior, but there's no way he can ever publicly address it. And I think part of the reason for that is because it's true, um, and and so. There, there's, there is a, a strong focus on one's public reputation, and and so there, it's not necessarily a downplaying one's private life, but but there is uh, a, a strong belief that you, you know what you cannot take is public questioning of your own integrity. Um, and and it's very strong in Southern culture, but but I mean this is what led Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton to the dueling field. I mean dueling is very common in politics in early National America, and it almost always happens because someone impugns the honor of another politician, and so they go out and they shoot guns at each other. So so anyway, uh, that. For for Jefferson, where this really became malignant, I think, is that it led him into uh, an, an expectation that he always had to entertain uh, people at the highest possible level of of sophistication and cosmopolitan living, and that he had to present himself in that kind of style, and that that led him to build Monticello. Um, and and to entertain guests endlessly there, and and um, it, it has to do with he had an incredibly expensive home uh, that he rented in Paris, and he uh, in Paris especially got a taste for the most expensive wines that you could get, uh, mainly from France, but other parts of of Europe, um, and he kept up that habit. When he came back to America, and he just it just meant that he spent and spent and spent and spent himself into the ground, um, because he just felt like this is what he had to do because it, it was related to his honor as as a gentleman, and it also led him to into very foolish financial behavior, uh, the the uh, epitome of which is that he co-signed a loan for one of his distant relatives and political allies. In 1819, it was a massive loan, um, and this person almost immediately died. <laughs> so then Jefferson was on the hook for this this Titanic uh, loan. Then the country went into a depression economically, and he was in terrible shape financially before that happened, but it absolutely sealed his fate, he, and he later on called it his coup de grace. And so that this is why... Jefferson dies in, in today's money in about $2.6 million of personal uh, debt. He was an absolute disaster financially. So one thing I want to spend a little bit of time on is we have a lot of pastors who listen to the podcast, a lot who aspire to be pastors. I mean, what is it that pastors can take from Jefferson's life? How can learning about him uh, be beneficial to them in their own ministries? Well, one exceedingly practical issue is that, especially in the United States, uh, 
pastors are going to be confronted probably at least annually with claims in their church that all the founding fathers were Christians. Um, th this comes up regularly around July 4th, especially, but also maybe um, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, th those kind of anniversaries. And uh, pastors are going to need to know what they think about that issue um, because there are uh, Christian popularizers uh, who usually have more of a political than a historical agenda, but they, but you know the idea is we are a Christian nation, we were founded by Christians, and the you know the, the liberals are lying to you about you know Thomas Jefferson or or somebody like that. Um, they they really were a Christian, and so pastor, you need to tell your congregation this. So uh, that's going to come up in evangelical churches in particular. Um, and and I, I think it would be a good thing for uh, seminarians to, to get some uh, background on what, what they actually think about that. Now, if you frame the question in a, different, in a different way, and people will see this reading my Jefferson book, you know, is... Christianity or, you know, theology more generally, theological assumptions important in the American founding? Absolutely. Um, so, and you see it in the Declaration of Independence, but also everywhere else. So it is not as if you have to say, go to the other extreme with the secularists and say, oh, you know, religion made no difference. It's like the secular enlightenment and most of the founders were you know, closet atheists, uh, you, you know, that, that you don't have to go to that extreme either. But when you look at somebody like Jefferson and you say, it, it is not hard to demonstrate the fact that he did not believe in the Trinity or the resurrection or the divinity of Christ. And so if you start saying, well, this guy's a Christian, then uh, you have compromised the gospel, <laughs> Right, I mean, and that's what that that is not a place we want to go in the name of American civil religion. So uh, that that that's a big deal. But but I I think it also is a challenge for pastors and other kind of leaders these days to know how to get the balance right uh, with somebody like Jefferson, or in uh, in the Christian tradition, somebody like uh, Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield who were slave owners, um, and, and in Whitfield's case, really kind of a pro-slavery activist. Um, what do we do with these people? I mean, I mean can, can we still sort of talk about them in a really celebratory way? Do we just act as if they're not there? Um, you know, wh where, where do we land? I think that it's a real uh, challenge for, for leaders, people who might be leading congregations on these types of issues to know where to land. Um, and I think it's somewhere in the middle between cancel culture and then just kind of celebratory apologetics and, you know, whoever brings up slavery is a squish. Um, I, you know, some, somewhere in the middle is kind of the wise biblical approach to these issues. And I, I think pastors are going to need to be ready to, do some thinking about those issues. Yeah. I mean, I even remember in undergraduate, my undergraduate studies, I had somebody come for our chapel sort of thing 
and he gave a whole lecture on basically, you know, every founder is a Christian. Here's all the biblical, you know, explanation for it. And at the time, I think I'm like an 18-year-old freshman. I think this sounds pretty good. Um, but I um, definitely see how you can make the connections to where if you actually end up reading other people and realize, wait, they're not, does this create sort of problems down the road for you? So one last thing I want to ask you, this should be an easy question. We, I think we have a lot of listeners who are interested in this, you know, American religious history sort of area. Are, are you supervising PhD students right now? So if they want to study further, is there opportunities where they can say, I want to study with Dr. Kidd? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that is one of the things I've come to Midwestern for is to uh, supervise doctoral students in uh, in religious history. And uh, we have a really strong cohort of people who work in church history here uh, across topics and, and time. But uh, yes, I'm, I'm already on doctoral committees and working on various topics in Baptist and evangelical history. And and so forth. And I anticipate doing that for years to come. Awesome. Well, I know all you guys listening, there there can't be a better person to study with. So I think of when you want to have a, a PhD supervisor, you want somebody who's an expert. But as a Christian, you also want somebody who can mentor you in your own Christian faith. So I think of Dr. Kidd as an exemplar in those things. So if you're interested in that area, you should definitely reach out to him and look into the opportunities that are there. I think you would probably be very blessed to, to have that opportunity. So everybody's been listening. Check out all of the stuff. I'll try to link to some of the books that we've mentioned. I mentioned, you know, the Baptist in America book as well. Uh, but some of the other ones, I think what they, I can't remember the title. It's the Great Awakening book that looks like almost a forest on the front. Um, I'll find the title of it. I'm going to put it in there because that's my favorite book, even though I can't remember the title. Um, so I've really benefited from that one uh, personally. And it really kind of set the context for me of what's going on. And I remember reading some crazy wild stories in there, which is uh, really interesting. It kind of gives you sort of just a context for how we got here in a lot of ways. That just kind of helped me connect the dots of how did religious culture and religious stuff get to the point where you're at and become normalized in these sort of ways. So it helped me a lot. So thanks, Dr. Kidd, for talking to us about Thomas Jefferson and all that goes on there. You guys should definitely check out his work and follow along. So everybody's been tuning in. Thanks for listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.